Hey everyone, welcome to the 16th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Tom Gullickson. Tom has had an incredible career in tennis, reaching career highs of 34 in singles and 4 in doubles on the ATP Tour. He then went on to coach the U.S. Davis Cup team, the U.S. Olympic team, and was one of the original coaches for USTA player development. On today's episode, we discuss the grass courts of Wimbledon, how to hold serve more often, his best doubles tip, and what it was like coaching the Davis Cup team. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Goalie, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm pumped to have you on. We're talking the Thursday of the second week of Wimbledon, and I know that you've been following it a lot and watching a lot of the matches. You were able to play Wimbledon uh, many, many years and do very well there. For the listeners out there that have never played on grass, can you quickly just tell us how that's a different experience than playing on a hard court? Yeah, grass is a unique surface. You know, they only play on grass at Wimbledon and then a, a couple run-up tournaments before. And then uh, in the U.S., there's one grass court tournament at the Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. You know, it's, uh, it's a unique surface. It, it's a very slippery surface. So movement is at a premium where you need to really kind of stay kind of grounded and you need to really keep your, your balance your center of gravity balance over your body in the middle of your body. If you get outside your skis too much on grass, you're never going to recover very well. Also, it's a, it's a very uh, low bouncing skiddy ball. So if you hit a good firm slice or even a nice flat ball, it'll really hit and, and skid through the court. The heavy top spin that you see on, on the red clay at Roland Garros, when it bounces up, is just not great on grass. It'll sit up, and then somebody can drive that one and really hit through the ball. So heavy topspin on the grass isn't as effective as a really nice flat ball or a, uh, or a good low ball. Um, you know, drop shots, as we've seen at Wimbledon, uh, a continuation from the French Open, we, we see – a lot of drop shots being very successful on grass. When you approach deep to one side, if you volley short to the other side, it's almost always a winning play on the volley. Whereas on a hard court, that same volley would kind of sit up and you'd get past like a hitchhiker. So it, it's a unique surface. It's fun. And like I told Stevie Johnson, I was working with Stevie Johnson and Dennis Kudla on the grass over in England before Wimbledon, you know, five, six years ago. And they were both whining about not getting any rhythm or whatever. And I said, boys, if you want rhythm, go to the disco. You're not going to get rhythm on the grass. So really kind of an athletic kind of shot making surface. So I used to tell the guys really enjoy just kind of being an athlete. And, and when you're on the run, you can hit some shots and, it's it's a really athletic kind of shot making surface that you can really showcase your abilities. It's funny because Opelka, I think in a press conference last week, he said, "I think grass court favors the better mover instead of the better like the bigger server." And I think most people have always said, "Oh, it's such a quick service, so 
Isners and Opelkas, they're just going to serve their way through. But he was kind of saying the better mover has the advantage. Do you agree with that? I do. And also it's a, it's a low ball striking surface. And the last time I checked, Riley was right around seven feet and Isner six eleven. And yeah, once, uh, once you get the serve back, you know, especially if you hit a nice slice to those guys, it's pretty rough to get down when you're, when you're seven feet tall. So yeah, I think you know a good mover on any surface has got the advantage, but certainly on grass, a good mover who can play well, kind of from below waist high, is also going to be very very effective. So as I mentioned, you know you played Wimbledon a ton. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the farthest you went in singles was the third round, and I do know that you made the finals of doubles in 1983. Uh, one year before I was born, not to make you feel too old. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the game has changed a lot since then, but also some fundamentals never change. So what are some things that you used to do as a player that you have seen being executed in Wimbledon in the year t- uh, 2022? Well, there's no question. The premium is on holding serve. You know, the worst thing that can happen to you if you hold serve six times is you're playing a tiebreaker. So yeah, as you've seen, you know, sh- certainly showcased on the men's side, uh, specifically at Wimbledon uh, this year is, you know, the top guys, Djokovic, Nadal, you know, Taylor Fritz, all these guys are holding serve at a very high percentage. And then um, the courts now are much slower and much more true bouncing than they than they were when when we played you know they're lasered they somehow slowed the slowed the surface down it used to be much quicker and very kind of uneven when we were playing you know i always joke around with my buddies when we're watching wimbledon you know in my era in the 70s and 80s you know most of the guys played serve and volley so the wear and tear on that center court at wimbledon would be in the split step area, you know, right before the service line. And then even at the net, it would be really be worn out. And now when you look at the court, it's very pristine in the kind of split step area. And even in the mid court and front court and all the, all the damage and all the brown spots and the dirt is right around the baseline. So obviously there's a lot more rallies now on grass than there used to be. So you mentioned holding serve is a premium. It was back then. It is today. If you don't have the most efficient, effective serve, what are some other things that you think someone can do that will help them hold serve more often? Well, I think, number one, being able to move the ball around the court well and being able to change speeds, absorb, you know, absorb heavy balls and being able to redirect, you know, especially with slice. You saw Nadal yesterday in his match with Taylor Fritz. He One of the reasons he kind of turned that match around is he started going to the slice backhand a lot more. And with Taylor's big Western uh, grip on his forehand, that gave him a lot of trouble. And it also gave Nadal a little more time to recover his court position so he could look for his big forehand. So not only does the slice backhand stay low, and problematic for your opponent, but it also gives you time to recover and and look for a forehand if that's what you want to do. On the other side of that, you know, you're trying to break your opponent's serve. So what's your best advice 
to get that one or two breaks a set? What what are the simple things you can do to get into your opponent's serve games? Well, I think one of the things we see now that was certainly a lot different than in my era is you see the guys standing so far back to return serve. A, the serves are coming a lot faster because of the the racket and the string technology. So there's no doubt the guys are serving much bigger than they did in my era. And we all used to stand kind of near the baseline, take the ball early and chip it and block it and, and whatever. And now you're seeing the guys return from further back and take bigger cuts at the return. And you really see him going after the second serve with a pretty big full swing to try to gain the advantage on the second serve return. And a lot of the great returners like a Djokovic and whatever, not only are they very proficient at making first serve returns and arguably most of the time they go deep middle. And then on the second serve, they're they're really thinking about being aggressive and attacking the second serve return. So they, they get the advantage in the rally right away off the second serve return. So, you know, grass does reward really good first strike tennis. You know, you, you'll win some points with the first strike, but you also gain the advantage in the rally. And, and people like Djokovic and Nadal and all the kind of legends, when they get ahead in the point, it's very hard, you know, to players to, for the players to get back to neutral. So, yeah, grass really rewards that kind of good first strike off the return. You just mentioned Nadal, and actually before we got on this call, uh, he just pulled out of Wimbledon. I don't know if you saw that with the abdominal tear. No, I didn't. Yeah, he's out of the what? semi. So wow. he Nadal is, is my favorite player. Um, I love watching him, and, and mainly because I think his mindset and his attitude on the court is so admirable and, and so great to root for. But what is it about Nadal that you think – recreational and junior players can try to emulate it's you know it's probably impossible for us to get a forehand that's as good as his but what does he do that the everyday player can try to emulate to have success for themselves well i think number one his footwork is phenomenal his movement his effort level his relentless i mean relentless point by point mentality I mean, here's a player who literally, he doesn't take a point off. He doesn't take one ball off. You know, I mean, one of the guys would joke around the other day. We go, geez, the doll is playing like he's broke. He he plays like he doesn't have a dime in his pocket. It's like, you know, he's got to win this match, you know, to feed his family, you know, the next day. I mean, the the fact that this this guy's been doing this for however many years he's been playing on the tour, it's just remarkable. And then and then there's no such thing as a big point with him because he plays every point with the same level of engagement and intensity. You know, a lot of players, you know, kind of mentally check out. They'll check out for games even. And then, you know, when they get back in the match, oh, wow, I've got a break point now. And, you know, I've really got to play this point really well. And they almost put pressure on themselves to play these quote-unquote big points well. Well, if you have the mindset that you're going to to compete for every point and don't take one point off, then when it gets to the so-called big point, you, you just treat it like another point because you're trying to win every point, you know. And uh, I told Agassi, I worked with Agassi at the Olympics in 96 when he won the gold medal 
in Atlanta, and he wasn't playing particularly well on the hard courts leading up to the Olympics in Atlanta. And I told him three things, very simple things. And a lot of times for our listeners out there, they think, well, when you work with really great players, you must give them this really complicated advice. But the best coaching advice is always simple. I told Andre three things. Number one, run for every ball. Do not quit on any ball. Number two, compete for every point. Like say, Jonathan, if you and I are playing and I'm up a set and and 5-1 and you're serving at 40 love, I could easily take your first serve and hit it in the back fence and go around and and serve out the match at 5-2 in the second set. But compete for every point. Mentally stay in there on every point. And, And thirdly, and probably most importantly, keep your poise and your composure no matter what happens on the court. So, and it's easy to do that when you're winning. It's very hard when you're losing or not playing well to keep your poise and your composure. But Andre did it very well. Like in the second round, he was down to the now chairman of the ATP, Andre Gadenzi. He was down to Andre Gadenzi, 6-2-3 love. Didn't blink. Came back, won the second set pretty tight. And then blew the guy away in the third set. In the semis, he was playing Francis TFO's coach, the talented South African Wayne Ferreira, who was very good on the hard courts, you know, top 10 player in the world. Wayne Ferreira served for the match against him in the quarters at 5-4 in the third. He broke, held, and broke to beat Wayne Ferreira 7-5 in the third. Then in the finals, he beat Sergi Bruguera like 1-1-2. and he gave him a complete hardcore lesson there in the finals, and he walked away with the gold medal. So someone like Agassi has to be reminded of those three simple things that you gave him, right? And I think players that I work with and, and people that I talk to who you know, aren't obviously at that level, they think that these great players have it all figured out, and it's, it's easy for them. Like they don't face these challenges, and, and you were a great player yourself. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome or things that you had to remind yourself when you were trying to be successful on tour? Well, I I think probably one of the biggest things I overcame was in 1982. I um, had a young family. I had a wife and two young daughters, and uh, I was putting, uh, you know, extra pressure on myself because now it wasn't just my wife, Julie, and I. It was these two beautiful young daughters that I had, you know, and I was like, okay, now I've got these two beautiful girls that I got to take care of as well as my wife. So I really need to win and and do better and get ranked higher and make more prize money and, you know, whatever. So I I ended up the first half of, of 82, I lost like six or seven matches, seven, six and a third. I was playing well, you know, I was playing good tennis but I would get to the end and I was so focused on the result, I would just kind of freeze up and literally my arm would lock up. It gets so tight. I was thinking so much about winning that I literally couldn't play. I couldn't execute. So I, uh, before I played world team tennis that year in Phoenix, my wife and I, my two daughters went out to Denver and we stayed with some friends for a week just to take a little vacation in the mountains before, you know, before I started team tennis in Phoenix. 
And my friend Tora had played in a charity event, the Easter Seals charity tennis event. And she played with this guy who said he was a sports psychologist. His name was Dr. Jim Lair. And Tora was like, hey, Gully, I, you know, I played with this guy, Jim Lair. He was, hey, he was a super nice guy. We had a lot of fun. And he said he was a sports psychologist. Now, this is 1982. Nobody had ever heard of sports psychology, Jonathan, in 1982. But um, she said, well, why don't you talk to this guy? Maybe he can help you. So I called him up. We arranged to have dinner that night, just Jim and I. And, you know, we went out to dinner. We talked for like three hours over dinner. Talked about my family, talked about tennis, talked about everything. And kind of on a personal level, I really liked the guy. And then for the next four days, we went on the court. And he didn't say one thing about my actual tennis. We we talked about the in-between point times and how to manage my energy, you know, how to, how to walk, how to present myself, you know, talked about visualization and he talked about all these things I really hadn't thought much about before. Right. And so at the end of the four days, you know, I, I said, doc, I, I love this stuff we're doing. How much do I owe you? And he said, well, golly, we can work it one of two ways. He said, you know, we can, um, you know, I'll, I'll arrange, I'll kind of figure out a fee and you can pay me and our relationship will remain anonymous or better yet for me. He said, I'm trying to start out with in this new, relatively new field. And, you know, if you could give me a nice plug in an article or an interview or whatever, you know, if I've said something or we've done something these last four days that has really helped you, and you give me a plug, you know, we'll call it even. And I thought about it for a nanosecond. And I said, you know, I really like option B, you know. So I go to Team Tennis in Phoenix after working four days with Doc Lair and all the mental stuff, you know, this competitive mental stuff, in-between points, 16-second cure, all this kind of stuff. And um, I finished second in men's. It was a three-week season. I finished, I played singles, doubles, and mixed every night. So I finished second in singles to Kevin Kern. I finished second in men's doubles to Kern and Denton with Andrew Pattison, who had just had arthroscopic knee surgery. He could hardly walk. So I was like playing about nine-tenths of the court. Then I won the mixed doubles with, with Pam Teagarden and my team, the Phoenix Sunsets, Finished second, and this is in 1982, Jonathan. So for that three-week period, I got a check for 60 grand from World Team Tennis, which was huge money, you know. And I was on fire. I was playing the best tennis of my life, and all these people in Team Tennis, like, what the hell got into you, man? Look at you, you're on fire. So I go to Cincinnati. I win my first round. Second round, I play uh, Yannick Noah, who was ranked like four or five in the world. I beat Yannick in straight sets. Then in the quarters, I lost to Edberg. And you know how guys are in the locker room. They're all teasing me. Hey, Gully, you've been laying on your shrink's couch lately and all this kind of stuff. So fast forward to the U.S. Open. In 82, I got to the quarters of the singles. And Timmy and I got to the semis of the doubles. And a big article in the New York Times and you know, interviews on TV, and now all of a sudden, hey, Gully, you know, what's that guy's name again that you work with? Do you have his number? Do you think 
he'd mind if I gave him a call and, and Dr. Lair obviously he's had a hall of fame career and he's written like 17 books and he's one of the preeminent, you know, sports psychologists in the world. And he, he gives me full credit for really helping him get started. And, you know, that, that whole kind of balance between how to be a good competitor. Cause before the doc, I always thought you had to be kind of a, type a jerk like you know guys in my ear like jimmy connors or mcenroe or somebody like that to to really be a great competitor and the doc was like golly being a competitor is a skill it's like hitting a forehand volley or or a second serve you work on this stuff you really dedicate time to it it can get really really good you and you know you know and i talked to jimmy connors one time they used to practice with Connors a lot. And I asked him what his kind of philosophy was on practice. He said, Gully, the tennis court is my office. Once I walk between the lines in tennis, in practice or match, whatever, I'm all business, 100% business. And then afterward, you know, we can have lunch, grab a beer, go play nine holes of golf. And I, I can be as social as anybody, but yeah, when I'm on the court, it's all business. And I think that's really one thing that the kids need to understand when they're training. It's not about how many hours you put in, you know, it's, you know, if you're some academy or something, you, know, you have to play five hours a day. Can anybody really play five hours a day in Florida, you know, when it's 95 degrees and 90% humidity, you can't, there's no way. It's about the quality, and that's one of the great things I learned from practicing with Connors. I mean, every time I practiced with him, you know, it was like playing the finals of the U.S. Open, you know? I mean, the intensity level that I had to bring to even make the practices competitive were a joke because we never did drills. We would just warm up and play. He just liked to play. What's the – if you going back to your, your time with Dr. Lair – you said he gave you a bunch of things over four days. What's one thing that stood out that really helped you? The, I, two things, really, really positive energy. I think tennis players by nature are perfectionists, right? They, we all want to be perfect, hit the perfect stroke. And, and I realized that I needed to give myself a break. You know, I had too much negative self-talk going on between points and you know when you're out there playing you have to be your absolute best coach your inner voice the voice you talk to yourself at between points has to be super positive and you got to give yourself a break you know tennis players need to be good at having like you know short-term memory loss and then the other thing really is just energy bringing a lot of positive energy because as you know, Jonathan, you know, tennis is a game of movement. The better, better you move, the better you're going to play. I guarantee you, you never played a, you know, a good match in your life where you didn't move well. And I, you know, I had some good wins over Edberg and Borg and Connors. And I, I look back to some of my best wins over the top guys. And I always felt like I was bringing great energy and I was like moving very well. And, and also, I had a real clarity of thought. I think a, a lot of juniors especially get a lot of thoughts racing through their brain 
And I always remember playing the absolute best tennis when my mind was very clear and it, it seemed like everything was going in slow motion. And that's, that's when I could find that space where I would uh, be, you know, playing my best tennis. It's so funny because I'll, I'll talk to kids of all levels. Some of the best in the country. Now, some of them are more state players and, and I'll say things like, Hey, we got to work on the energy. We got to work on the mindset and the attitude. And I think they interpret that as like, Oh, that's something that a novice would work on. And yet here you are one of the best players in the world. And you're saying that's kind of what got you going that year. Yeah. When you, when you look at all the best players, you know, that's what they do. All right. We're going to finish up with some Instagram questions. Uh, okay. The, fir- the first follower wanted to know what it was like to be the Davis cup captain on a team that had Sampras, Agassi, Courier, and Chang on it. Well, first of all, it was a great privilege. Number one. Uh, to have those four great champions and many other great champions, the uh, Jonathan Starks and the Jared Palmers and Alex O'Brien's and Richie Renenberg's and Todd Martin and, and all the great doubles players in, in Malavia, Washington. You know, we had, you know, we had the best players in the world playing. And what I tried to do as captain, I tried to create an environment around the team where each player felt really comfortable and I I tried to tried to get them prepared how they wanted to prepare for the coming weekend's competition. Like Courier always used to say, and Jim was one of my real loyal Davis Cuppers, he would call me at the beginning of the year and say, Hey Gully, and I just want to want you to know I'm available for Davis Cup anytime, singles or doubles. He said my doubles kind of sucks, but you know, I, I prefer to play singles, but but uh, I would I try to get give them each what they wanted. I, I didn't ever want to make practice like cookie cutter. You know, I mean, Courier liked to grind two on ones for two hours in the morning, and then play about three sets in the afternoon, and then go to the gym you know, afterward and, and burn up a couple treadmills. And our standing joke was like. On Wednesday around lunch, you know, I would say to Jimbo at lunch, hey, Jimbo, you've heard of the concept of tapering, right? Like kind of easing off the training a little bit so you're actually ready to play on Friday and instead of like killing yourself on a treadmill or something. And we would both laugh. He goes, yeah, golly, I got it. Tapering, tapering, got it. You know, uh, Sampras, you know, he would sit there and watch Courier practice and he would shake his head in admiration. He said, golly, you know, I'm, I have so much respect for Jim. There's no way I could do what he does on a daily basis to, to stay at the top of the men's game. He said, I couldn't physically or mentally do it. So Pete would come out, and I'd have to tell the practice partner, you got to play right down the middle because if you hit it more than two steps away, he'll let it go. So the practice partner was zoned in on hitting down the middle. Pete would hit for like a half an hour down the middle, pretty relaxed, you know, and hit some serves and maybe play a set. And I don't think he ever won a practice set. And then he'd say, that's good. I'm good. And then Agassi was like, hey, I'll play three, you know, all kinds of energy and talk. And sometimes Brad Gilbert would there and he would add a lot of talk to to the talk. And, uh, you know, Agassi would, would bring energy. He was really... You know, okay, let's play three three baseline games up to eleven for a hundred a game. You know, the practice partner a lot of times is ranked like two fifty. They look at me like, "Hey, Cap, 
you know, I said, don't worry, I got you covered. You know, I got you. so they would play baseline games up to 11 and then they'd play a set. And if Andre could beat the guy six, one, he'd beat him six, one and walk off the court. And Chang was, you know, more thoughtful in his approach. He would, he was uh, very close, you know, Carl, his brother was his coach and he usually had his family there. And, and, uh, you know, he was very thoughtful and very analytical about his game. You know, he had, he was obviously more of a counter puncher, so he had to kind of kind of figure out a little more what the other guy was doing and try to give him a good dose of what he didn't like. Whereas the other players would kind of their mindset, you know, it was interesting, kind of the champion's mindset. I talked to him on Thursday night before the singles. This is like Sampras, Agassi, Courier, you know, and I'd have the other opponent pretty well scouted and I'd say, What do you think of playing Thomas Enquist tomorrow or what's, what's your game plan? And you know what, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to establish my game and I'm going to establish my competitive will. And I'm going to make this guy adjust to me. And that was very interesting because they, they knew their game and they said, I'm going to go out and dominate this guy. I'm going to make him do all the adjusting. And by the way, cap, if I need to make some adjustments, you're going to be there with me. You can help me make some adjustments if I need to make some on-court in-match adjustments. And that was kind of the fun of Davis Cup, being out there with the guys, you know, kind of playing every point and, and going through the ups and downs, but helping them make adjustments when they needed to make adjustments. But, yeah, it was really the greatest honor of my life, really being the Davis Cup captain. So we, we mentioned uh, you obviously were a very, very successful doubles player. What is your best doubles tip for the average adult out there? Uh, my best tip in doubles would be movement without the ball. You watch kind of average doubles players play at a club, say at a club level now. We're talking, you know, they'll they'll hit the ball and they'll kind of admire their shot and and, you know, they don't move. You know, it's like as soon as you hit the ball, well, you send the ball from your racket all the time. The ball is in the air going to the other side is a time for you to reposition yourself based on where you hit the ball. So, yeah, you, you always want to be moving in doubles and and you don't want to kind of play Statue of Liberty tennis where you're just standing there kind of watching the ball go back. You want to be a proactive mover on the court. And same question, but for singles. Singles for the 3-0 to 4-0 adult player. What's your best singles advice? Uh, be solid and cut down your errors. Number one, take the net out of play. Do not lose one point to the net. Number two, aim for big targets. Our mantra at the USTA, which I thought was a very good one for the junior players now and the adults, is aggressive swings. So you're accelerating through on both sides, aggressive swings with margin, height over the net to big targets. Why do you think it's so difficult? That's something I try to preach daily, but it's it's pretty difficult for players to buy in and fully commit to that. Why do you think it's so hard to commit to hitting the big targets with all that margin over the net? Well, they they see, you know, they see the, you know, that, you know, in, in, Tennis does this on TV. I'm going to blame TV tennis a little bit. They always show the screaming winner, you know, right next to the line. They don't show 
the five shots before that where they moved the opponent left, right, left, right until they had the space to hit the winner on. So tennis is a game of errors. You know, if you make less, especially at the club level, at the junior level, even the pro level, the person who makes less errors is going to win. You need to really commit to having bigger targets and just be willing to put your track shoes on and do a little running. You know, you've got to outwork your opponents when you, you know, you know, I tell the kids all the time a couple things when they go out to compete. I said, number one, I'm going to outwork my opponent. I'm going to work harder than him or her. Number two, I'm going to have a better attitude. And number three, I'm going to give more effort. So if you can do those things, you know, you're going to have a pretty good shot, you know, on any given day. Every day you play, your ball striking is going to be a little bit different. And we all love to hit the ball well and hit the real ball in the middle of our racket really clean and see the ball going where we want and making some winners, which the kids love to hit those winners. But you're really going to make you're going to win matches by making people make mistakes. That's a better that's a better game plan. Well, goalie, this has been a pleasure for me. I mean, I, I got to learn from you. God, what was it now? Uh, 25 years ago when I was in those USCA junior <laughs> right. camps and right. and now to reconnect and, and to be able to pick your brain and, and learn even more from you now as a coach. It's a tremendous honor. And, and thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, you got it, Jonathan. Thanks a lot. A lot of fun. All right. I want to thank Gully for coming on the pod today. It's the weirdest thing, but he's like the fifth coach to come on the show and stress the importance of being consistent and simple with your tennis game. Maybe these legendary coaches and players are onto something. I also loved hearing a story about coaching Agassi at the Olympics. The simple cue of running for every single ball is something I see people neglect daily. Try to fight for every point with your legs and watch your level improve quickly. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.